Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. To be born, or at any rate bred in a handbag, whether it had handles or not, seems to me to display a contempt for the ordinary decencies of family life that reminds one of the worst excesses of the French Revolution. So said Lady Bracknell in Oscar Wilde's Importance of Being Earnest, um, an attitude towards the French Revolution that has been a very popular one in Britain in particular, um, but might perhaps be considered slightly unfair with me is uh stalwart john bull dominic sandbrook dominic Hello, tom. tom you're lady <laughs> would bracknell. you would you agree with lady bracknell on that i think you first of all um yeah. uh rest of history listeners will surely agree with me that you are the great lost lady bracknell <laughs> of our time can you do a handbag can you say a handbag in that querulous way handbag oh, oh my god is it tom holland or is it margaret thatcher you decide well so I, I'm I'm kind of of the Lady Bracknell school on the French Revolution. I take quite you a thin. Stun me. I take I take a very Burkean view of it, and I think actually it, it slightly bewilders me that that people in even in France um, don't take a more dim view of it, given the death toll. I mean, the death toll is alone is just frankly astounding. You know, when you think how much fuss there is in Britain about the Peterloo massacre, and in France you're talking about a quarter of a million people, maybe more. But your attitude wouldn't be that you, you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. Well, they didn't make the omelette. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> okay. the, that's the... Um, <laughs> they just dropped them all over the floor. <laughs> yeah, they just smashed up a load <laughs> of eggs. Them. <laughs> um, that would be Slipped my... Slipped up uh, on their arse. This is, uh, <laughs> this is quality historical punditry, isn't it? It's a shame we're doing this at the beginning <laughs> okay. of the episode. Okay. And presume we have no <laughs> listeners left. <laughs> okay, well, well, Dominic, so let's, yeah. let's try and get some quality historical punditry here. Um, could you, for yes. the, the benefit of... Um, those of us who who may not be completely on top of the details of how the French Revolution begins, just give us a brief kind of account of how it all kicks off. Okay, well, this is a massive topic, so it's going to be very oversimplified. But basically, France has been top nation for about 150 years. Um, it's extremely big by European standards. It's very rich. It's very populous. And then it all kind of goes wrong. Um, we did the Seven Years' War last week with Dan Snow. 
So people will know that the French lost the first sort of real global conflict to the British. And by the 1780s, France is suffering from a series of interlinked problems. Now, the French Revolution is not one event. It's a process. And it's not something that anybody plans. It's not a protest about inequality, which people often think. And nor is it uh, uh, an uprising of the poor against the rich. It's none of those things. Um, where it comes from, I guess, is that France has got three interlinked problems. One is there's a general kind of economic depression. There are economic discontent. Its population has massively exploded, um, by far the most populous nation in Europe. But it's got huge unemployment. There's not enough jobs for everybody. Um, food prices have gone through the roof. There's not enough food being produced. So in other words, you've got a lot of people, let's say in Paris, you've got a third of the population of Paris. These are kind of young people. So they're in their 20s and 30s. They don't have a job and they don't have any food and they're cross about it. And so discontent is rising. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that France is heavily indebted because of all these wars it's been fighting. Now, it's not the only country in Europe with debts, but it finds it's very hard to service its debts. It can't... Um, its tax raising system and its sort of political system is incredibly antiquated and complicated. And the king, Louis the Sixteenth, can't get enough money to pay his debts. So France is basically on the verge of bankruptcy. And the third thing that sort of compounds all that is just bad luck. They have a series of terrible harvests. There's a really, really bad weather, terrible winter in 1788, 89. Um, so there's, so, you know, people are starving on the streets. So Louis the Sixteenth decides he's, you know, he's been in power for what, 15 years or so. He's, he's not a bad man. He's indecisive, but he's one of these monarchs from the 18th century who's kind of an enlightened figure. He wants a more modern, streamlined system. And to do that, he needs to recall something called the Estates General, which is this sort of French equivalent of, of parliament, if you like. There has met. And there are three estates, aren't there? There are three estates. There's an ability, the clergy, and the third estate, which is basically everybody else. Everybody else, yeah. And it hasn't met since 1614. And he says he needs to get them to come back to, to come and meet at Versailles. And the reason he needs them to meet is he needs them to agree on a new system so that he can raise some money and basically stave off France's looming bankruptcy and sort the government out. So they, they all pitch up. And the third estate, this is where kind of enlightened ideas and stuff come in. The third estate are not content to just be sort of third fiddlers, as it were. As they, they had been in the 17th yes, century. Yes, they've always been outvoted by the nobility and the yeah. clergy. They don't want to be, they basically are all these sort of lawyers and stuff uh, who with full, their minds full of kind of enlightened ideas. So trouble. Yeah. So trouble for the king. They're not going to be pushed around. He basically said, you know, they fall out with the other estates. He wants to get rid of them. He thinks this is all been a terrible idea. Actually, this isn't working out very well at all. So they all go to a tennis court at Versailles and they swear an oath that they're not going to leave unless they get a constitution and they basically get the new system that they want. Now, that's all very sort of political and dry. But at the same time, in Paris, discontent on the streets is reaching a crescendo. People are starving. People are angry. Um, the Louis tries to get rid of his chief minister. And at that point, the sort of crowds start rioting. They attack the Bastille, this prison in the center of Paris that's a symbol of um, royalist rule. It's basically got nobody in it. It's got seven prisoners in it, most of whom are forgers. But it's sort of seen as the symbol of royal tyranny. They attack the Bastille. The Bastille falls. There are lynchings. And at that point, even at that very early stage, I would say Louis has kind of lost control of this process that he has set in motion. He wanted to reform. He's a bit of a Mikhail Gorbachev figure, I think. He wanted to reform the system and to sort it out and to modernize it. But he's done it at the worst possible time with 
immense sort of anger and resentment on the streets of Paris. So Paris is this sort of seething cauldron of, of revolutionary ferment. And at that point, the process begins to spin away from him. And then you get a series of, yeah. you know, assemblies and clubs and political factions, and the revolution then starts to sort of take its course. And there is this incredible sense throughout the whole process that people assume that it, it can't go any further. So that, that yeah. oath in, the, in the, the tennis court is the 20th of June. And on the 27th of June, there's an Englishman in Paris, a guy called Arthur Young. Oh, yes, I know this quote. <laughs> yeah, it's a great quote. So this is one week after. The whole business now seems over and the revolution complete. Yeah. And basically, for the, for the next, what, 10 years maybe? I mean, you could even say the next two centuries perhaps – uh, people keep saying that, don't they? They keep saying the revolution is over. Yeah, they do. And and I think one of the things about the French Revolution that makes it so fun to study is that no one's in charge of it. So it's not quite like the Russian Revolution, where when Lenin comes into the story in the Russian Revolution, Lenin is clearly the mastermind and the Bolsheviks have a plan. And the Russian Revolution is following, you know, they're responding to events, but it's following, you know, they, they have a sort of vague sense of a blueprint. In the French Revolution, there's never one person or one party that's really in control there are a series of factions fighting constantly and that's why the revolution keeps on as you say it keeps on rolling and, and you think well it's not going to go any further but it always doesn't and i think partly because war enters the equation once yeah. i think it's violent from the beginning but once war enters the equation once france's neighbor once france declares war on its neighbors and the war starts to go badly then everything is under this sort of cloud of paranoia and, and anxiety and fear and stuff what, would would you say that that the revolution, in a sense, is a sequence of experiments? Because Fr France has had, you know, the Ancien Régime. It's by definition, it's deeply entrenched. It's absolutely rooted in the fabric of French history. You get rid of it, then you have to to try and replace it with something else. Yes. So the the summer of of seventeen eighty nine is basically, I mean, it's kind of an attempt to put in in process enlightenment ideals and perhaps with a nod to the the, the model of the the british mixed constitution so yeah. uh so you have um the uh the declaration of the rights of man and the citizen which is absolutely kind of rooted in the enlightenment ideal if only we follow enlightened process then everything everything will be great um you have uh, um a meeting of all the nobles who furiously give away all their feudal privileges in a kind of joyous sense that this is, yeah. you know, what fun. Let's get rid of this. <laughs> everything's going to be great. And, well, some and of them do anyway, yeah. Yeah, and the, but the assumption is, is that if you do the right thing, then everything will turn out great. And, and then it's, it, it kind of turns out not to. And then over, as you say, over the, the, the year and a half that follows, you start to move towards a Republican system. Because actually, like the English Civil War, it, it does not begin... In any way, with you know, republicanism is a really, really minority interest. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So basically, nobody wants a republic in 1789. I think you're dead right, Tom. Everybody thinks they're going to get a constitutional monarchy. Um, the problem is that Louis the 16th, he doesn't really want to be a constitutional monarch. He just wants more money, basically. He wants yeah. the system to work better. Um, but also, none of them really bargain for the fact that I think they don't bargain for the war. So they don't, but they, th they actually go into the war. It's France that declares war on its neighbors, but they think they're going to win. I mean, they, they don't, they never expect that the war will go against them. So that radicalizes everything. But also I think what these guys in Paris don't get 
Um, you know, these are most of the revolutionaries, the sort of standard figures that we all, you know, everyone's heard of, even if they don't know about the French Revolution, the sort of Robespierre types. These are very high minded, young, very well educated lawyers, people from kind of middle class, bourgeois families and so on. And I think what they don't get is out, out in the countryside. I mean, France is a very big place um, by European standards Fra- and it's very rural. And out in those places, people don't actually really want the revolution. You know, they, they, they're the, the things like the Catholic Church, the revolutionaries want to get rid of. They like all that. They just want to be better off. They don't want to destroy all the world that they've grown up with. But isn't it also the case that in, in Paris, that the sans culotte, the, you know, the, 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 what I guess, um, Lady Bracknell would call the mob. The mob, yeah. Um, they also are kind of, they, they are another source of pressure. And yeah, in a they sense, are. they are more important than, you know, what peasants are doing in the Vendée. Absolutely. Because, because yeah. Paris is where it all matters. And so in yes. a sense, increasingly, although it's, it's, it's the lawyers and so on who are, who are making the running, it's, it's, you know, p- people who are equivalent to people who write in The Guardian who are pushing <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. They are kind, they've kind of got a, a, a you know, they've, they're holding on to a, 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 t- a wolf by its ears. Yeah, they are. I think they're they're and and you say about the sonculot. I mean, the sonculot are people you know without knee breeches, so they're sort of raggedy people. Um, and uh, the pressure that's coming from the streets of Paris is is coming from people who often don't have a job and who who are desperate for bread. And food prices are rocketing, and they want cheap bread, and that's their main priority. But also, of course, like all as we know with revolutions, when you have groups of quite young people who don't have a job who are basically loitering on the streets all the time. You, there is almost an inbuilt sort of a ratchet, a kind of radicalizing effect. And I think a lot of these politicians are frightened of the mob and are, yes. you know, they're trying, as you say, they're trying to sort of ride the tiger and, and they're constantly thinking, you know, what do the mob want? What can we give them? You know, how can we harness this to our advantage? But the mob are also a kind of constant temptation because they, so there are the women who get sent off to Versailles to bring the king and queen back to Paris. Yes. So that's a kind of eruption. And then they kind of get suppressed. And then uh, when when the, when the the king and the queen decide that um, you know they've had enough, and they run off to Varennes, yeah, and then they're brought back in disgrace, yes, and then essentially to try and stir things up, then the mob are given their head again. Yeah, I mean that's what ke- the people, the politicians keep doing is giving the mob their head. So the Paris Commune, the sections as they're called, they're, there's this sort of two parallels power structures i guess so there's the national assembly or then the convention as it becomes and then there's the pressure from the commune and the national assembly is the uh, th- that's what the estates had been so the third estate go off to their tennis court and then the nobles and the, the priests join them and they all become citizens and they all become they are the, the nation in assembly so you have a series of i mean anyone who's listening to this who's done this at sort of a level or something will know just how fiendishly complex this all is but there's a there's a, a nationalist there's a legislative there's a constituent assembly a legislative assembly and then a national convention but basically you know in, it's exactly that it's kind of a big you know it's where we get the idea of left and right from actually um you know this this sort of big hall people shouting at each other the classic kind of parliamentary model i guess yes well okay so so just a couple of questions here uh, which shows just how um, influential the French Revolution has been and continues to be. So there's one from Lucius. Why was the French Revolution a horrible mistake? <laughs> and one from John. Why was the French Revolution the right thing to do? Oh, there you go. Well, so um, well, you see, I would probably say, I, I think the mistake is an interesting one because it's a mistake in the sense that 
nobody gets what they wanted. Nobody gets what they th- that they thought they were going to have. So although in, in sort of 1790 or 1791, within a year or so of it, of it happening, of it beginning the process, um, there is a sort of sense at that point, well, maybe it's going to be all right. You know, maybe the National Assembly is passing a lot of reforms. They're sort of nationalizing church lands. Okay, well, They're can trying I just, to- Dominic, so there's a question here from Brian Williams. Could the French Revolution have been averted in 1789? Well, no, because the process, a French Revolution was always going to happen because France... Because it had run out of money. It had so run out of money. It's bankruptcy. Bankruptcy yeah. is the key fact that means that some change is going to have to be introduced. I think so, because the system, I think in a way France was the victim of its own success because it had been so successful for 200 years, basically. Um, they hadn't needed to modernise and come up with all kind of sort of clever financial instrument and political instruments as, for example, the Dutch Republic or Britain had. Smaller countries that had had to kind of innovate to keep up with France. France hadn't needed to do that. It had this very antiquated political and economic and financial system. So they were going to have to change that at some point. The problem they had was that Louis does it and he's not very decisive, so he doesn't really know what he wants. Um, they're doing it at a point when he can't, you know, he doesn't have much public support because people are hungry and prices are rocketing. They've lost a lot of wars. You know, so he doesn't have that much political capital. But, but Dom, just put a counter view to that. I mean, it, isn't there is a kind of revisionist take and I, absolutely not my period, so I may be wrong with this, but there is a kind of opinion that actually the Ancien Regime kind of at the, at the, at the, at certain levels was reforming itself. That, well, that's that, Simon that Chalmers' very, take, for Very example. talented, very able people were starting to come through. Yeah. And that in a sense, the, the tornado of the revolution slightly threw them off course. Um, I mean, do, do you give credibility to that? I, I do give a bit of credibility to that, actually. I think um, it didn't have to unfold as disastrous as it did. And the common view, the sort of Dickensian view, if you like, which is of... so the. the the, the 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 view that we have in Britain of the French Revolution is this is sort of Charles Dickens's view that it's just this complete sort of bloodbath preceded by grotesque inequality and exploitation and, and all this sort of stuff and neither of those things is quite true. So the Ancien Regime is is you know Louis and the people around him are much more thoughtful and I mean less sort of ultra reactionary than than we often remember. I mean Louis is not really a tyrant. He's just trying to do his best in a pretty difficult job. And he loves um, keys, doesn't he? Does he? <laughs> yeah, keys and locks. I d- oh, yes, I did know something yeah, about this. Because uh, that, that he, he, he was having problems consummating his Yes, marriage. he did. That's and, right. Uh, yeah. He had some sort of um, gynecological issues, if that's right. It's not he, the right I word. Ha- you know? I think he had a, a problematic foreskin. Yeah, I think, I think that's that. To be um, resolved by surgery. Um, but also and- Marie Antoinette, she gets a dreadful press. Okay, well... Yeah. Well, Dominic, Dominic, you have mentioned uh, Simon Sharma, who, of course, citizens is um, <laughs> it was it was Anglophone um, historiography's contribution to the uh, the, the bicentennial, bicentennial celebrations, <laughs> and um, uh, citizens famously um, basically said it was violent right from the beginning. But uh, we have a question from Simon Sharma. That's very Which is kind of embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Simon no asking us for the question. But he asked, why was it so why was the revolution so brutal to women? I guess in a sense, I mean, you know, look at it in the general, but but the figure of Marie Antoinette is kind of paradigmatic in this. Yeah. Well, he writes about this himself. I mean, he knows the answer to this question, I'm sure. Um, but I, I when I thought about it, he's he's absolutely right. There are the French Revolution, there are, there are sort of a handful of very famous women associated with it. Marie Antoinette, um, 
executed. Charlotte Corday, the assassin of Marat, executed. Madame Roland, who has this literary salon, executed. And Olive uh, de Gouges, feminist. Yes, yes who, 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 who pushes the citizens, citizens and the, uh, what is it? Yeah, the, the rights of women and the, and the citizens. Yeah, exactly. Also executed. So basically, if you're a notable woman in the French Revolution, you're going to end up dead. But it's that these women, and particularly Marie Antoinette, they are the victims of intense misogyny. So Marie Antoinette has been lampooned in all these pamphlets for sort of 20 years or so. Well, really scatological. Pornography, isn't yeah, it? I, mean, I was about to say, really scatological, pornography. pornographic pamphlets, incredibly vicious. I mean, she's very, there's no doubt she's very extravagant and she's very conservative. She's an Austrian, you know, well, um, but is princess. She? Is she? Because I, based on but, my viewing of Sophia yeah. Coppola's classic, <laughs> starring Kirsten Dunst, which when my children, my daughters were growing up, was, was their go-to film. It was their favourite film. So Marie Antoinette for them was a kind of real icon. And I, I think oddly, that film is kind of true to the sense of Marie Antoinette as this kind of Rousseauist figure that... She's all about um, leading her life naturally, living her yeah. own truth, while also <laughs> keeping hold of the, uh, you know, all the, 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 the privileges of, um, of monarchy. So there's a slight, there's a, there is a slight kind of Megan quality to. Oh, uh, God, that's harsh. To well, I think, um, I think Marie Antoinette deserves, deserves better. She wants her cake. And eats it very nice. Well, well, she famously doesn't say. She absolutely... Which she didn't say, yes, I know. Howard Rogers says, what kind of cakes should we let them eat? But this is Rousseau's line. Rousseau came up yes. with this line. It says this story that a princess had once said, let them eat cake. But he said that before Marantz when I had even come to France. So she never says that. You she are does like have her, can't you? She does have this like little nice little farm in her, in her palace where she goes and pretends to be a milkmaid and stuff. But that's absolutely standard for an 18th century aristocrat. Her little farm is no more extravagant than anybody else's. I, but I think it is, I think it is slightly different because I think that um, a French queen is expected to behave in a, a kind of more formal, austere, certainly subordinate and submissive role. And Marie Antoinette is kind of very, very influenced by the cult of sensibility. So she's hugely into, you know, Rousseau's novels and Richardson and all that kind of stuff. But also, Tom, I think that women, uh, queens, this you see this so often in history. You see it with, you know, Alexandra, with Nicholas II's wife in Russia. You see it with Henrietta Maria, with Charles I's wife in England in the 1630s and 40s. Uh, so often the, the figure of the foreign queen becomes this kind of lightning yes. rod and people project all this stuff onto the queen. Well, she's Austrian, isn't she? And the, and, and Austria is the hereditary en enemy. Yeah, exactly. So she's, she's the Austrian, Austrian whore. And people say of her, you know, she's brought in these Germanic sexual practices by which they mean lesbianism, yes. which is a complete myth and a complete invention. But they use this as a stick with which to beat her. So I think women do get a generally a very rough ride in the French Revolution. But, I, but, I, but all of them. So even, um, so, so, Madame du Barry, who was Louis XV's mistress, I mean, she gets guillotined. Uh, Marie Antoinette, obviously. Um, and as you say, Madame Roland. Yeah. And all of them get accused of kind of obscene sexual practices. They do. And even, I tell you, a terrible thing. So Marie Antoinette's best friend is a woman called the, the Princesse de Lamballe. Oh, yes, And in the yes. September massacres in 1792. So this is when France is, is, is losing the war. They think um, the Prussians are going to arrive at any moment in Paris. So what should we do? Uh, I know what we'll do. We'll go through the prisons and kill everybody. But, but Dominic, that's an example, isn't it, of, of basically people within the, the convention saying, let's unleash yeah, unleash hell. hell. Let's unleash sort hell. Of, yeah, no, exactly. And they go through and they drag out the Princess de Lambert. And there are various different accounts. Some of them may be sensationalized. But there's no doubt she was 
hideously murdered. She's mute, she's mutilated. Her head is cut off. They take her head to a barber's and have it, the barber do the hair. They take the head around Paris, kind of cafes. Then they stick it on a spike and they hoist it outside Marie Antoinette's window. Let's look at what we've done to your friend who you are supposedly, um, been having a lesbian affair with. And, and the, you, I don't think anyone can hear this story without thinking there is a charge here, a really unpleasant yeah. charge that there wouldn't yeah. be with well, a man. And of course, one of the people who uh, was kept in the Bastille, although he's moved a few days before it gets stormed, is the Marquis de Sade. And yeah. there is a kind of um, background to all of this, which again feeds into the idea of the aristocrat as, as kind of a demonic pervert. It's you know, there's also uh, uh, dangerous liaisons de Leclos and everything. This this image of scheming aristocrats um, who view torture and sexual sadism as a source of pleasure. Is 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 a really powerful part of the kind of swirl of of attitudes and assumptions that that is making up the the the, the propaganda yeah. and the, the the climate of opinion at the time. Isn't there a case, Tom, um, that the people who are directing the the revolution in its most in its bloodiest phase, in the phase known as the Terror, seventeen ninety three to four, these are young men, very young men. I mean, they're in there. There are virtually none who are older than their mid thirties. So they're very young men. They're staying up late. They're tanked up on wine. They, you know, there aren't any women around. And there's a, there's a lot of kind of surging, unfocused energy there, which is expressing <laughs> itself in exceedingly violent, you know, these are blokes who would be better off settling down with a nice woman. That's my, that's my uh, take on the French Revolution. Okay. Well, talking of unfocused energy, I yeah. wonder whether we shouldn't perhaps just take a break here. <laughs> <laughs> Draw our breath. And, and when we come back, perhaps um, focus on the terror and Saint-Just and Robespierre, um, which obviously for English students of the French Revolution is always the kind of the most dramatic and uh, I will love that section Tom. of it. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hello, welcome back to uh, The Rest is History. We are talking about the French Revolution um, and we have, we're arriving at uh, the terror, which of course for um, fans of Dickens, fans of Carlyle, fans of the Carry On films, is what it's all about. <laughs> Carlyle and the Carry On films—you don't often hear them in the same breath. We've we've um, we've talked about um, the execution of of the famous women, yeah, in the French Revolution, of whom Marie Antoinette, of course, is the most famous. We should probably look at um, 
Louis the Sixteenth, because in a yeah. sense, his execution kind of removes the prop that has held up the entire system of French government for centuries and centuries and centuries. And in a sense, it's the removal of the monarchy that then leaves everything open, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think once you once you get the removal of the monarchy, then the focus turns to... I mean, one thing we haven't really talked about is the nation, the idea of the nation, which I think is really created by the French Revolution. So the nation is in the kind of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Well, it's there in the in the in the oath of, of in the the tennis court, isn't it? I mean, the very idea of setting up a national an assembly for the nation. Exactly. Then the nation becomes sovereign, not the king. I don't want to give you a kind of too much of a gift, but obviously this idea of the nation being sacred. Um, yeah. well, and I'm, once I'm you've not going to take that, and once you've taken the king out of the equation, then the nation, which is this big sort of amorphous ideal, um, becomes the focus. And I think you're right that you know that also happens when the war is going on. So France is under siege and at that point there is this you you get this intense radicalization i think as the search for enemies within to explain why things are going scapegoats so robespierre for example um he's he says you know he was against the death penalty would you believe robespierre before the terror his one of his most famous things was he was he was against capital punishment he thought so was uh, so was dr guillotine yeah dr well he just he didn't invent the guillotine he just wants them to do it because he thinks it's cleaner and, but he didn't want executions at all. But he thought no. that, it, that if we've got to have them, we might as well yeah. have a yeah. So, well, and, this is actually, and he's the guy who who takes him into who leads him into the tennis court. Is he? I, that, yes. I did not know. That yeah. is a good yeah, yeah. fact. So, so everything fits together. <laughs> it's a great conspiracy, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. well, Freemasons, free isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, so anyway, Robespierre he basically says Louis must die so that the nation can live. So you know, there's almost this sort of great sacrificial moment. But once you've sacrificed one person and it's not working out, then you maybe need to sacrifice some more and i think this is what happens they just start feeding people into the more of the kind of of the guillotine if the guillotine can be a more and, and things don't go well and so robespierre for example he thinks you know we want a pure virtuous republican france and so we just need to keep getting rid of people until we till we find it well there's that famous cartoon isn't there of um of of robespierre um with guillotines in the background and he is executing the executioner and yeah. everybody every he's executed everybody else in france yes that's right. the last person in france i mean this is exactly so i think this is the thing about the french revolution that actually makes it linger in the imagination it's not that they are just executing aristocrats and their enemies because that's kind of understandable it's that they're executing each other so the, yeah, the pe- and, and they're not really executing aristocrats are they i mean they're no. not per I mean, se half, loads of the aristocrats ex- have fled they've gone but but there are aristocrats who hang around, and yeah. you know that's. Well, if you, I mean, actually, here, here's a great question um, from uh, Brecht um, Savalcall, who asks, "Who is the closest modern equivalent of Philippe Egalité, and why is it Prince Harry?" <laughs> so Philippe Egalité, the it's former Louis. Duke of Orléans, the, the yeah. cousin of, of of Louis the Sixteenth himself, who <laughs> actually votes. I mean, he's 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 a he's a citizen in the and and in the trial of Louis and votes to have him guillotined. Yeah, so he is a terrible man, and he is Prince Harry. He um, <laughs> he votes for his own cousin's execution, and he's kind of more Republican than the Republicans. I mean, that's his thing. He changes his name. Imagine changing your name. I mean, we live well, in a country. Lots of people do. Yeah, well, we live in a country that now has. We don't don't we now have in Birmingham? Isn't there sort of equality close diversity way and all this kind of thing? No, but, but, but it's, it's only a matter that- of time before Prince Harry renames himself kindness or something, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but also in this, I mean, you know, we, we, I think we're being sl- slightly harsh because, 
you you were casting it all as kind of blood blood and hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean, there there are also hugely positive ideals here, perhaps exemplified by the way in which um, people are looking to the heroism of the Roman past. Well, if you, casting you want to go down that road, I mean, I, you clearly do. Heroic uh, figures who um, are ready to sacrifice themselves for for the for the nation, for the patria, for la patrie. Yeah. Um, so you find that noble. I, I think that 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 both Saint Just, who is clearly um, the coolest a and most terrifying, <laughs> yeah, of of all the French revolutions, but I mean kind of rock star glamour to him. Well, he's in his uh, very early 20s, isn't he, when it all kicks off. I mean, he's a very young man. But all um, the Jacobins are, when they say that they are motivated by virtue, they are motivated by virtue. I mean, I... But that's what makes them terrifying, though, Tom. That they're not, sure, you know, they're sure. not corrupt enough. That they're not... I, I was thinking about this with Robespierre when, uh, this morning when I knew we were going to be in the, the podcast. And I was thinking, what is it about him that makes him such a disturbing figure, which I think he is? And it is that he's not Vladimir Putin. He's, he's not. He's, he's not a sort of incorruptible. a cold-blooded autocrat. He's a cold-blooded, high-minded do-gooder, and that's what I think people find so resonant about him. That he is the paradigmatic example of what happens when you have somebody who basically says, "I'm going to fix society. I'm going to clean terror." You know, yeah. Dominic, terror is nothing but prompt, severe, inflexible justice. It is therefore an emanation of virtue. Is that Robespierre? That's Robespierre. Yeah. Yeah. He is, I mean, he is pushing to the limits a sense of how radically can you pull down what you see as being corrupt and evil and how readily can you put something in its place? There's a lesson here for the uh, National Trust. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's in, because we were talking about culture wars. Like, I mean, in a sense, there is a, there is a kind of... <laughs> All that, you know, putting up, reminding so people. So proud of myself that, for that remark. <laughs> re- reminding people that um, great buildings, you know, that there, is, there is no monument of civilization that is not also a monument of barbarism. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that concept. I mean, the moment you, you get rid of the, mo- you, the, you abolish the monarchy, not just because the monarchy is inadequate, but because the very institution of monarchy is a, a, a barbarous legacy of superstition and oppression. Then you have to you 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 have to go flat out not just against the king but against the entire institution. So yeah. revolutionaries head off to Saint Denis, which was the kind of Westminster Abbey of, of French royalty, and they dig up all the bodies of the kings and queens and put them in a lime pit and dissolve them. And I think the only one that got away was uh, Henry the Fourth. Um, uh, right, I wonder yeah, why. So, so they kept the... his head because I think he was a bit of a culture hero. And the only other one was some reason the heart of Louis the Fourteenth was preserved. And it got taken to England, where it got eaten by William Buckland, who was um, uh, the Dean of Westminster, who also named the first dinosaur. And he liked to eat everything he could. And he came across this and got told it's the heart of a French king. And he ate it. That's 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 the best fact I think we've ever had on the rest of history. Yeah, well, you're welcome. You're welcome. But <laughs> um, um, slightly diverted. But anyway, so so so. so when Louis, so, so there's a, a humi- an aim to humiliate and and downgrade, yeah, the figure of Louis himself. So he he, you know, he gets shorn on the on on the scaffolding. He gets treated just like anyone else. 
his body gets taken away, put in a rough coffin. Again, the kind of lime gets put on it so that none of his remains will be left. The same happens to the memorials of the kings. All the statues get pulled down. But you also have the same process happening with the church, which likewise is seen as a bastion of feudalism and superstition. So kind of a a, a, a kind of um, revolutionary equivalent of the dissolution of the monasteries. It's exactly that, isn't it? But it's also, it's also Tom, this, this obsession with rationalism and uniformity. Isn't it? Because it, yes. it's not just well, that they do all that. They're renaming, the, changing the calendar, you yes. know, moving to sort of, don't they try but, to move to a 10 day week? But also the metric system. The metric system. Which, of course, again, you could view as, as being perhaps the most enduring yeah. act of legislation uh, passed by. I think it pro- you, I think you can definitely argue that. I think the metric system, the new names for all the months, obviously, which don't catch on the kind of, uh, Termidor and uh, Prairial and Brumaire and all that sort of thing. So it's basically this remaking the world from year zero. I mean, obviously, year one of the revolution, year two of the revolution. And of, and I'm, you've shown great self-restraint <laughs> in not mentioning. <laughs> I have. Rob's, you know where we're going. I Rob's do. and the, the supreme being. I do. Well, I've I've hugely resisted the temptation to, to quote Ernst Bloch's famous comment on the French Revolution that it is the Christian event par excellence, because it is invoking all kinds of Christian ideas of of you know, new beginnings. So yeah, just we date our our years from the from the incarnation. Uh, the French revolutionaries wanted to cast their revolution as a, an event of a kind of similar similar epical. Um, significance yeah. and their attitude towards kind of you know an apocalyptic day of judgment the last being first the first being last it's all kind of it's all written in there but you're right that what essentially what Robespierre wanted to do was to um absolutely commit to the idea of reason as being the supreme the supreme being and so Notre Dame is converted um into a shrine for the supreme being. And it's a bit like kind of Akhenaten, I guess. I mean, that's the thing that yeah, most that's reminds a good comparison. me of. That's a good so comparison. Akhenaten pulling down the statues of the traditional gods and enshrining this rather kind of bloodless deity in their place that, that people emotionally couldn't connect with. And Dominic, this is one for you. As, as a Tolkien fan, <laughs> do you know what the, the image, the favoured image that, um, that Rosepierre had for the supreme being? This is a tree. No, it's a disembodied eye. Oh wow! So it's literally like yeah, Sarah. but that's quite a sort of Freemasonish thing, isn't it? Yes, that's it sort is. of yes. lurking around in the eighteenth Freemason- century. Yeah, yeah. The the symbol of the eye. I mean that 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 festival of the supreme being. I can remember we did the French Revolution at school when I was about twelve, and that was the thing that stuck in my mind that it happens in the middle of the terror. So they basically take a break. Robespierre is signing hundreds of death sentences. I think he signed something like 600, between five and 600. And he basically takes a day off in the middle of this to go and inaugurate this festival of this sort of slightly made up God, <laughs> in which he's wearing this special new sky blue coat that he's very proud of. And he's got a sash. And actually a lot of his colleagues are laughing at him and they're, they're sort of muttering behind their hands at him. You know, this, you know, he's loving this. He's gone a bit mad. And it's one of those moments where actually, although it's his apotheosis, the the mood is kind of slipping away from him a bit there because he looks ridiculous to some of the others. They don't well, go along sure, with I'm, that. I'm not sure that. I mean, I I think that um, kind of lurking behind it is is and forgive me for saying this, but it's the kind of the the, the book of Revelation. The idea that a, an end time has come where sheep and the goats are being divided, great spectacles of blood, but also of of building a new Jerusalem, and that's essentially what yeah 
you know, in secular terms, in rational terms, Robespierre is trying to do. Um, and- but he's also doing it, though, Tom, at a time when you can't you can't forget they're doing it at a time when the Prussians are almost at the gates. You know, they're coming closer all the time. So um, no, it's not just that he thinks he's building New Jerusalem, but he thinks that the people who surround him. So he thinks a lot of his colleagues are actually secret British agents who are working for William Pitt. So there's this sort of weird paranoia. That's not just a kind of religious paranoia, but it's yeah. also they know yeah, that they're in paranoia. Yeah, yeah. They, well, they know that there are lots of thousands of men out to kill them. You know, yeah. a, a couple of hundred miles away. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, here's a question from Fergal O'Shea, who asks, "Why did Robespierre, unlike Stalin, lose control of his purge? Both purge left: Hébert, Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Wright, Danton, Bukharin. But Robespierre ended up purged himself." Oh, Stalin is a much more sort of potent political figure than Robespierre is. I mean, Stalin plans everything very cold-bloodedly and is very pragmatic and knows exactly what he's doing. Robespierre, I don't think, quite knows what he's doing. Robespierre is suffused with this idea of of virtue, but also Robespierre makes a series of hideous tactical mistakes. So he does this thing just before he's they get rid of him, where he basically goes to the convention. He gives a speech saying he's he's going to clamp down on his new set of enemies, but he doesn't say who they are. So everybody thinks, well, is it me? Could be me, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think we yeah. should get rid of him because it's probably going to be me. And and that's just a mad. I mean, I think at the end, Robespierre was if I mean he he'd lost. These are people, he's working, you know, 23 hour days or something. And they've completely lost that. These are guys who five years earlier were just provincial lawyers who are suddenly faced with this collapsing economy, this country in revolution, large parts of the country rising up against them. He's trying to bring in a new religion. He's trying to rename the calendar. He's trying to control prices and and fight a war. And it's all just too much. But as David Nielsen reminds us with his comment, could the role of alcohol be said to be critical in the revolution, not simply among the people, but in the Committee of Public Safety? I've heard their bar bill was shocking. So they're yeah. they're all off their faces on. I mean, they're pissed off their heads. Yeah, I think they probably I think they probably are. Although the one one of it's weird. So Danton is the most is the sort of the, the most sort of the, the biggest sort of gourmand. He eats and drinks you know, for France. Well, he's played by Gérard Depardieu in the great film. Brilliantly. Yes. By Depardieu. And there's the a scene where born he in- to play. Where he and Robespierre go for a meal, a sort of reconciliation meal, and, and Robespierre is horrified by Danton stuffing himself yes. with pies and oysters or something. <laughs> and uh, and Danton so is saying, chop his saying, head off. Mange, Maxime, mange, trying to encourage him to, <laughs> to eat. And, and Robespierre won't do it. But in reality, the, the sort of the, the Montagnard, so Robespierre and his crowd, held Danton's overeating against him. They thought it was counter-revolutionary and yes. unpatriotic and a sign of his sort of, that he must be working for William Pitt. Yes, he was shoveling him British beef. <laughs> yeah. Well. On the, on the side. Yeah, and they called the mountain, aren't they? Because they're, they're on the, the, the top. Top benches. The top seats, the top benches. Yeah. yeah. So the, like I always gods. distrust people who sit at the top in a lecture theatre because I think they probably have dangerously. <laughs> Revolutionary terroristic on your head. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so, um, the story of how Robespierre falls, I mean, it's a horrible one, isn't it? Because it yeah. involves a hanging jaw. So his jaw, yeah, that's a, horrible histories. There's a lot of fun with this. So they turn against Robespierre. He gives this disastrous speech. He's heckled in the convention. Um, a lot of the other deputies, and it's not just a right-wing reaction. There's a lot of people on the left. There are actually people who are bigger on the terror than he is, who think he's, you know, he's, I've got to get, get him before he gets me. So there's this sort of turn against him. They go to arrest him. He he decides he's going to... He's never used a gun before in his life. I mean, he's basically, you know, he's such a kind of guardian 
reading type. He's never handled a, a firearm. He doesn't, but he's, he doesn't know what he's doing. He tries to blow his head off. He kind of, it's unclear what happens, but he basically <laughs> blows half his jaw off and it's hanging. It has to be bandaged on. And so that when they take him to be beheaded, the executioner pulls off the bandage and his jaw kind of falls off and he gives this terrible animal shriek before they behead him and then they behead him and then that's the end of him. Um, but you know, the weird thing, Tom, is that for most of the 20th century, the, the, you know, the, the main chair in French Revolution history, the Sorbonne, was occupied by people who were, were Robespierre fans. So French historiography in the 20th century, a lot of it was a kind of defense of Robespierre and the Jacobin and the, and the terror. And actually it was only in the 1980s that people really started to fight against that and say, well, actually, maybe the terror was a bad business. Well, there's another question here from uh, Chet Archbold, who has oh, yes. sent in some questions before. Um, what do you make of the view, which I guess is the Simon Sharma view, that the violence was inherent to the revolution right from the beginning? So that's a key question, isn't it, really? Is, yeah. w- was, was it always going to be, was it always going to end up with guillotines? Th- this is your Margaret Thatcher versus Francois Mitterrand question, isn't it? So it, I thought we yes, talked about is. this in a previous episode about how when they have the big spent by centenary, everybody, everybody else turns up and talks about human rights. And, and she turns up and she gives Mitterrand, a, did she give him a leather bound copy of A Tale of Two Cities? Yes, she did. She did. But, you know, equally what, what Mitterrand said about the revolution in, in 1989 was that he, he admired it because it was still feared. Wow. That's like you talking about Tony Blair. <laughs> yes. um, um, yeah. no 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 i mean so but but, uh, but you know but, and and still in french politics now there are, because in 1793 it's legislated that the, the french people have not just the right but kind of the responsibility to launch insurrections if yeah if the revolution is being portrayed and you will still you know in the gilets jaunes people were, were citing that as a justification for what they're doing it's, it's remembered completely differently in France. Just weirdly, despite the fact that it was so traumatic and that so many tens and hundreds of thousands of people died, it's remembered, you know, there are more French Revolution partisans in France than in, than in Britain. So in Britain, the tendency has been to emphasize the violence. And Simon Sharma in his book Citizens, one reason a lot of people in France hated it was because Sharma said violence was the motor of the revolution. You know, the revolution was violent from day one. Okay. And well, I think, he- I think he's completely right. And I think Chet Archibald is right. So the Stormy of the Bastille. You know, a lot of people die in the Stormy of the Bastille. And the governor of the Bastille, who's basically this completely inoffensive, mid-ranking officer. You're defending the governor of the Bastille. What? Governor Delaunay. You're who's such again, a counter-revolutionary, Dominic. You, I, honestly, when the guillotine gets set up in Trafalgar Square. There are, there are only you, seven people in the Bastille. So they drag <laughs> him out and everybody's like stabbing him and punching him and stuff. And he's basically being lynched by this crowd. And he lashes out and he kicks a pastry cook in the groin. Then the pastry cook stabs him to death. And, and a butcher comes along and like uses a knife to sort of saw his head off and the crowd are all cheering and whooping and stuff. I mean, robust political discourse, Dominic. By any standards, you wouldn't see this in the streets of Northampton, Tom, and you know it. <laughs> well, chipping Norton, perhaps. <laughs> okay, well, here's, here's another counter-revolutionary question um, yeah. from Thoughtfully Detached, who who's, I think is definitely a counter-revolutionary. The inheritors of the revolution have done their best to wipe the events in the Vendée out of the record books. Do both the brutality of the sort against the Vendeans and their subsequent erasure from history reveal essential truths about the French revolutionary project? So the Vendee is this kind of murderous civil war that's yeah. going along on in the, the Atlantic seaboard. Yes, and in the west of France, the rural the west of Catholic, France, Catholic royalist. Which is, yeah. Yes, yes. And 
the the repression is very very. I mean, it's, it's very brutal. It's, it's basically near genocidal. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, yeah. to try and think of an analogy, Tom. Take your beloved Wiltshire. I mean, imagine you know there would been some revolution like that in Britain, and that then. London had sent out troops to go and pacify kind of Wiltshire and Dorset. And they said, oh, basically, they're not really signed up to the project, so I think we should just kill them all. I mean, that's effectively what happens in the Vendée. So the people still argue about the death toll, but you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. And yeah. somewhere like Nantes, people are being, I mean, they have mass drownings. Yeah. In the, in not the, even mass in the, shootings. In the, Loire, in the Loire, don't they? In they the Loire, yeah. Put them in so they drop them in. I mean, really horrific stuff. And actually, you know, for all the talk of the sort of the rights of man stuff, I mean, if your rights of man stuff is 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 predicated on the fact you're going to have to drown a lot of people in cages, I mean, okay, in- but 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 so Robespierre's the fall of Robespierre and that the 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 crushing of uh, of the Vendee, I mean, that's not yeah. the end of the revolutionary process. So no, it keeps going. In I mean, in 1795, that so that's the year after the fall of Robespierre. There is talk of restoring the monarchy. So they, yeah, they're always royalist you know, they, plots. Yeah, yeah, but but it's not just that. I mean, because they've got Louis the Seventeenth, so the, the the this poor boy who's the son of Louis and, and Marie Antoinette, who's been brought up by a an illiterate cobbler, um, and they're thinking, well, we could make him king because yeah. then he'd be a kind of you know that's basically what they want, isn't it? They want a cipher. They want a kind of puppet on the throne. You know, that would be an ideal constitutional monarch, and then you build everything around it. But then he dies, and they're stuck with. The guy who the, become Louis XVIII, who's this huge fat reactionary, yeah, and yeah. stuffing his face in Guildford, yeah. isn't it, or something? I mean, yeah, he's. I mean, he's a man who basically says, "Let's turn back the clock to fifteen hundred or something." Yes. I mean, not an not 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 an inspiring model of what reaction no. might be. Um, he's a sort of Daily Telegraph columnist figure, I think. So you've got you've got the the, the reactionaries, you've got the the the, the counter revolutionaries, you've got the royalists. They're a part of the mix. You've also got in seventeen ninety seven. A guy who's been described as as perhaps the first communist, um, who's a man known as Babouf. Oh yeah, Babouf. Yeah, but you know his his he was originally called François Noël, but you know what he changed his name to? Oh, go so on. good! I've been so tempted to do this myself. He changed his name to Camillus Gaius Gracchus. Wow. Well, that's a and the Gracchi the Gracchi were 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 kind of famous Roman aristocrats who um, were murdered by the Roman elite for basically trying to stick up for the people so that you have this this journalist who's identifying himself with um with with dead roman aristocrats but who essentially is calling for a communist revolution yeah I mean, he's 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 saying everything must be held in common and i think but, i mean no one's going to back he's never going to get anywhere no of course I mean, not but but it, i mean it's it's, a, it's it's a sign of just how many points of view how many ideologies how many um People are evolved in the kind of swirl of ideas and how much, how, how kind of plastic it is, how moldable it still is. And I guess right, right the way up to, I mean, the guy we haven't talked about, but who, whose, whose shadow increasingly yes. stretches over this conversation as we move forwards, which is that of Napoleon. Yeah. So Napoleon is a, I mean, Napoleon is a revolutionary officer. He suppresses a, voil, a royalist plot, a royalist uprising with the famous whiff of great shot. He sort of comes to the fore in the late 1790s as a sort of leading the Republican armies in Italy and so on. Um, and it's clear, I think, that, you know, maybe the analogy is sort of 1990s Russia or something, the, the modern analogy that people would be, yeah, that he's, yeah. he's a guy who's been thrown up, but who, but in the sort of the, the course of events, he's great, becomes a great hero because of his military conquest. But 
there is a craving for stability. But you know, there's another, but there's another more obvious historical parallel. I bet it's going to be a Roman one. It is a Roman one because the whole history that, you know, the the story of Rome is that you have a king, you expel the king, you establish a republic, the republic implodes amid blood and, and, and anarchy, and then an imperial, you know, a warlord, a Caesarist comes in and establishes his rule. And then he ends up losing to barbarians who've crossed the Rhine. And that essentially is the story from 1789 to 1815. Yeah, Germanic barbarians. Very nice. Yeah. Wow. The whole span of Roman history is compressed into... (laughs) But of course, that's how they thought of it themselves, Tom. Of course it it is. I mean, they are basically sort of Roman Republic reenactors. Absolutely. uh, And that's that's the kind of amazing thing. So you wonder, you know, to what extent is this obeying some kind of natural rhythm of history? And to what extent is it all one enormous bloody cosplay? It's it's a kind of really interesting question. Well, of course, Marx thought there was a law of history, didn't he? He thought Bonapartism was bound to emerge from this sort of bourgeois revolution. Um, But I think uh, the one thing about Napoleon is not... I think it's a mistake to think of Napoleon turning the clock back from the revolution because, of course, a lot of those no. sort of things about rationalism, about uniformity, about a kind of liberalism, Napoleon incarnates those things. And he is and he is exporting revolutionary ideals across Europe. It's just he's doing it in quite a authoritarian and corrupt way. Yes, and also, of course, there is one obvious um, major moral blot on this scutcheon of Napoleon as a, a, a kind of liberal reformer which is cited by Ollie Nichols, um, who mentions events in Haiti. Yes, um, yeah. So, yeah, that's... And actually, a part of the French Revolution, I think, will become even, you know, become bigger and bigger in the next few decades because we're much more conscious of this side of the story. So you're right, the Haitian Revolution breaks out in the 1790s in response to what's been happening in France. And Napoleon... I. Uh, have you read that book, Black Spartacus, yeah. by um, about Toussaint Louverture, so the lead, one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution? And I remember this quote from that stuck in my mind. Hey, Napoleon says, um, the, the sort of blacks are rising up against the, the whites. I'm against the blacks because I'm white. Or, yes. I mean, it's completely sort of unashamed about it. Yeah. And one of the things that the revolution, the French Revolution, generally disrupts, actually, is France's, is France's kind of imperial project. So France loses... You know, the uh, the French ports, sort of Bordeaux and so on, they had traded in slaves. They had traded in sugar and coffee and rum and things like that. And actually, Napoleon goes to visit them after he becomes emperor. And he's horrified at how quiet the keys are because they're not trading in them anymore because of the Caribbean uprising and so on. And um, and he wants to turn the clock back. He wants yes, to rebuild yeah. um, France. And that's why he wants to get rid of the Haitian revolutionaries. Although when, when, he, um, when he then escapes from Elba and comes back while um, all the various plenipotentiaries are, are in Vienna trying to draw up their new plan and Lord Castlereagh is pushing for abolitionism there. Uh, Napoleon suddenly comes out as an abolitionist as well. So I think on shameless. the issue of slavery, he's shameless, he is, he? yeah, he's, he's very, he's very shameless. I always think, I don't know what you think about this, Tom. I don't think we should do, do, we should have a separate one on Napoleon, but I think people who like Napoleon are like people who like Frank Sinatra's my way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's... Don't you? Uh, no, I don't think. I, don't. I think they're people who like look Frank in the mirror Sinatra. and say, no. say to themselves, one day I shall be world king. You know, I'm thinking of. <laughs> Listen, I, yes, I do. I do. So I, I think, it, however, that to um, to look at Fr- the French Revolution in the global context. Yeah. So we've got a question from Diego Morgado, who's, who's an enthusiast for the French Revolution. One of the most important events in world history. I mean, yes, I think. Definitely. 
don't you? Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so, yeah. From left to right, divide, declaration of human rights, rejection of monarchy, nobility and religion. There was a before and after, even influenced places like Persia and China. Am I right? I think he is right. I think he is absolutely right. And I think that the impact of the French Revolution isn't just about the terror and kind of bloody warnings. It is also about um, enshrining ideas of human rights. It is about um, republicanism. It's about the idea that uh, hidebound ideas can be banished with the light of uh, progress and, and reason, and that these ideas, although the French Revolution kind of serves, you know, as a warning, and I think that the French Revolution definitely, fu- you know, cranks up the, the the fires of reaction to it. It does also serve as an inspiration, and that in that sense, you know, what you talked about, left and right being on either side of the the, the, the president of the assembly, the French Revolution serves to set the the, the political contours of not just European politics, but global politics for the, the centuries that have followed it. And that is what makes it so seismically important. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, obviously, one reason why people love it so much is it's just a great melodrama. I mean, it's a fantastic story. But I also think, I mean, I think you could argue, though, Tom, I mean, to, to sort of make to make my expected contribution, I think you could argue the French Revolution retards progress because it tarnishes the idea of, of, of democracy. progress. Yeah. And it certainly does in Britain and in the sort of English-speaking world. There is this, I mean, British reactionaries use it throughout the whole 19th and you know, century as this I, sort I of terrible... I think in Europe as well. I think well, I think Europe it's got well. so think... much traction in Britain now because of Burke. Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, which is this colossal... I mean, it's the foundational text of conservatism. That yeah. Basically, if you start messing with the system as it exists... You will end up in a complete nightmare of and and the thing that makes it so powerful is that Burke wrote that before the terror, so he yeah. was right, he was proved right. Well, and people have taken that ever since as the ultimate justification of conservatism. But I think this is kind of pa- an interesting parallel with the Reformation, where the Reformation obviously gives birth to Protestantism, but there is an, also an argument for saying that it gives birth to Catholicism in the sense yeah. that we understand it today. That that, and in the same way conservative conservatism royalism whatever reaction after 1789 is is a very different beast to the the ancien regime it's exists yeah. as a reaction to the revolution just as much as the um you know politics on the left is a kind of natural progression from it um so in that sense it it's uh, i think the french revolution absolutely is it deserves its reputation as as the kind of the great event of modern history do you think more than the? Because we had a few questions. I I can't. Oh yes, uh, Joseph Ruiz. He says, "Is it is it more important than the American Revolution?" Yes, massively. I mean, it's much more important than the American Revolution, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I've got a quote here from David Bell. Astonishingly, not once in the early years of the French Revolution does a single political figure seem to have quoted the American Declaration of Independence. Yeah, but that's because I think the American Revolution wasn't seen beyond america as a revolution it was seen as a as a breakaway but it was it's not a revolution in the same way is it i don't it's think. A, it's it's a debate among anglophones yeah about anglophone traditions whereas the french one the french revolution really does go kind of global anyway well, that, i think yeah. that we have talked well we haven't talked enough about the french revolution as we? we could we could talk about it for hours i know i'm looking at all the questions but, we haven't handled i, I yeah, feel ashamed i, I feel so ashamed many, of myself yeah many apologies uh, i mean maybe we can come back to it there's so much more to to talk about God knows. I mean, we can come back to it in 2037 or something. Um, <laughs> I'm so optimistic thought. about the future of the podcast. That's great. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Year zero. Um, so many thanks for, for listening. Um, having talked about uh, 
the French Revolution in this podcast. Our next podcast will be on the subject of British food, which is kind of... <laughs> Hurrah! The roast Burke, beef of Burke England. would approve. Burke would yeah. approve. <laughs> so many thanks for listening, and we'll see you then, I hope. Bye-bye. Au revoir. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.